Oh, look, there's my phone ringing in the background. You don't want that, do you? <laughs> Hold the line, caller. No worries. I'll be, I'll be right there. Should we not put this bit in the podcast? <laughs> this is the intro. Bradbury. Oh, sorry. He's the one. He's the one who. Um, he's the one who got me walking when I was little. Aww. He took. He used to take me walking from the age of about six all across the Peak District, and um, yeah. So without him, I wouldn't be here quite literally in every way. I think probably. Oh well, got lot to thank Daddy Bradbury. Lots to thank Daddy Bradbury for. Um, anyway, welcome so, yeah. to a little bit of positive. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry, Julia. I was going to say we've been talking about um, Michael Packard. We are talking about Michael Packard. So Michael Packard is a lobster fisherman. And I'm just going to give you my favourite quote from Michael Packard. Is this from was, the Cape Cod Times? Yes, you stole my thunder. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I was completely inside. It was completely black, Packard told. Cape Cod News, ah, not the Times. Um, I one day want to do a report for the Cape Cod News. I thought to myself, there's no way I'm going to get out of here. I'm done. I'm dead. And all I could think of, of course, with my boys, because they are 12 and 15 years old. Yeah. But he did get out. Because amazingly, this 25-ton humpback whale knew that there was something crusty and, you know, not that tasty inside and went up to went up to the surface of the sea and spat him out. It's unbelievable. There's this brilliant picture as well of Michael in, in a hospital bed looking very smiley, big thumbs up, lots of um, things testing his heart rates and stuff on him, but he looks in good spirits. And, I mean, it's just unbelievable. I mean, just the, the idea that you would... You know, like it's this biblical thing, like the real life Jonah and the yeah. whale, isn't it? And just being dragged down into the water. And the fact that this huge, great 25 ton machine, I mean, they're just incredible creatures, aren't they? And they think as well that, um, that it was it was completely accidental. You know, the, the humpback whale was doing what humpback whales do was opening their gaping big mouth and just mm. like going for a whole school of fish thousands and thousands all in one and he just kind of got stuck in the middle there amazingly he suffered a dislocated knee and a great deal of soft tissue damage no surprise there then that was it i know amazing to have got off so, so unscathed and uh, you can just hear the telephone will be now if he's if he's home from hospital which i'm sure he is by now the phone will be ringing off the hook there are going to be all those all those programs like the 999 program, the emergency yeah. program, where they try and recreate it. The recreation will be awful, obviously, by the way. They'll be using a massive big rubber whale. It's going to look <laughs> shocking. Um, and uh, and there might even be, there's a movie script in it, I reckon. Oh, if definitely. my teacher, the octopus, or my octopus teacher, uh, which we've spoken about before, mm. um, which is, I mean, obviously the magnificent story of the life cycle of the octopus, if that can be a compelling Oscar-winning uh, movie then i reckon this is 
This has got the teeth for it. All of this does actually have a, a very loose connection to our guest today. Mm. Everybody will be listening to this podcast going, what are they banging on about? This has got nothing to do with positivity. But it has, because what we think, this is Giles and I, we think that if Michael, the lovesy, the lubsty lobster diver, <laughs> if he can escape the jaws of a humpback whale and survive when he thought he was convinced he was going mm. to die, and you would, wouldn't you? Come on, let's face it. Yeah. Um, it means that anything is possible and you should never, ever give up. That's the positive message that we are taking from his story. And I think you could be as hopeful about climate change, which is a big, big, sticky, tricky mm. topic. And um, we are speaking to one of the world's experts on a little bit of positive today because his name is Professor Miles Allen and he is one of the most influential contributors to the to various IPCC um, policy reports. And the IPCC is the Intermental, Intergovernmental Panel uh, on Climate Change, of course. And essentially, I think it would be fair to say that more than 90% it's probably even higher than that, but I'm, I'm going to go safe because I haven't got the stat in front of me, but more than 90% of the scientific community peer reviewed do agree that climate change uh, as we are living through it now is man made and is being advanced very much by our activities on the planet. And um, Miles Allen is one of the proponents of of the early IPCC reports. And he is also head of climate dynamics at Oxford University, should you not believe his um, his qualifications, and also the principal investigator of project climateprediction.net. So you know what, you know what, we've definitely, Giles, we've definitely bagged a good one. Yeah, he's, I mean, he today. really is the sort of leading authority on this stuff. He is the leading authority. So the conversation is going to be positive. You will hear positive news because he genuinely believes that there are solutions to climate change. And he's been in rooms and at seminars with people who have got the solutions. But also he's just really good at explaining climate change, where we're at, why the prognosis is what it is. And it's it's just always brilliant. It's one of the pleasures of this job and of this podcast to be able to talk to such um, informed and intelligent mm. people. Yeah, it was a brilliant conversation and we were able to ask him lots of questions. You know, some of them probably a little bit <laughs> stupid, but, you know, I think it's important to sort of find out some of these basic things. I mean, I think my first question to him was, are we doomed? And, uh, you know, what a good place to start. <laughs> I love you. You're always always starting on a high. <laughs> Um, the, the irony of this question is not lost on me, given that the fact that this is called a little bit of positive, this uh, podcast. But I'm wondering, with, you know, with our current sort of trajectory, um, are we doomed? <laughs> <laughs> no, we're absolutely not doomed. And, and actually, I, 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 I find this question... Uh, well, we're doomed if we keep asking that question. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so this is, you know, climate change is a deeply fixable problem. Um, but the problem is uh, we're in a bit of a funk about it. Mm. And I think that's actually making it really hard to see, in a sense, how simple it is to fix. Um, that simple doesn't mean easy. We're dealing with very big things here. Um, but the actual fix is relatively simple. And that's why we've got you on, uh, Professor 
I'm going to call you professor for a bit because yeah. I like doing it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we've, we've got you on because I've heard you being interviewed before and I've read, I've read uh, lots of your work. And I find you an incredibly passionate, positive person. And I love the fact that it, you, you use expressions like deeply solvable problem. Um, is it right as well? I, I might misquote you, so always, always, uh, always um, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but you don't like the term climate emergency either, do you? You think it's, it's quite an unhelpful term. Um, the, the problem with climate emergency uh, is that it implies you need to panic. Panic is what one does in an emergency. Now, climate change is urgent. We need to get on with dealing with it. But panicking is the last thing we need to do right now. Let's let's go back in time a little bit, because I'm interested in your career trajectory, because you, you started your academic life studying physics and philosophy. I like that. And I, I, I'm curious to know more about how that's influenced your um, your academic work over the years? Uh, well, it was a great course. Um, and to be honest with you, I, I thought at the time the philosophy was, you know, kind of a bit of uh, not not exactly entertainment, but, you know, something to, to make the physics more interesting. Uh, turned out to be remarkably practically useful over the years, uh, particularly in my involvement in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which involves producing these periodic reports where every phrase is very carefully weighed up and thought about, about does the evidence really show this or not? And, you know, the, the conversations I remember from philosophy tutorials on what exactly can we say we know, given evidence and so on, was, was actually exactly what we were talking about in these Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change reports. I think you um, I think you provide hope for students who uh, uh, and I, I completely uh, understand this students that don't quite know what they want to do or where they want to go or where their uh, where their academic path might might lead them. You didn't set out, did you, to become the professor of climate change, to become the expert in this field uh, at all? It, it uh, was, absolutely it not, was no. quite by accident. No, no, I know I wasn't. I wasn't the smartest physicist in my year by any manner of means. Um, I, I think you could have. I would have been very surprised to have discovered I was going to end up in a, a, a career in physics. Um, I went off to work um, in conservation in East Africa. Um, but at the time, you know, climate was starting to come up the agenda. I was lucky enough to do an internship at the UN Environment Programme. And a part of that involved learning about this issue and made me realise that, you know, I, I had a physics undergraduate degree. Um, and so I could go back and do some research in it. Yeah, the work in, in Africa, what was that that you were doing over there? <laughs> we were trying to save trees. Um, by distributing, by selling uh, more efficient wood stoves. Um, the, the problem was the wood stoves were, were so efficient and clean that uh, we quite often got told by enthusiastic schools and hospitals and the like uh, that they'd been able to give up their gas stoves because they had these very efficient uh, new uh, wood-fired stoves to replace them. So I'm not <laughs> so, quite sure so how many trees. <laughs> yeah, I'm not quite sure how many trees we saved, but we did save a lot of lungs, and that I'm proud of. Yeah. Um, in fact, a large part of my job was sort of monitoring the impact of this project, which involved going into kitchens with you know detectors to try and detect how bad the air was. And, and I could barely survive in there for 15 minutes to take the readings. And these unfortunate cooks were having to work in there eight hours a day. So, you know, I think there was there was a, a lot of positive in the project. Um, and it was my introduction to the, 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 the sort of difficult things you have to weigh up in dealing with environmental issues. And it's an experience which lasts me to this day. I mean, you know, also learning about 
you know, the very different perspectives people have in different parts of the world and the different priorities they have and so on. So I was very, very fortunate to have that have that experience. I think the older uh, I become, the more I realise, as you've just said, uh, Miles, there is no... <laughs> And a previous guest of ours, Simon Anholt, said this as well. He he studies um, politicians and and uh, their policies. There is no black and white. There is no this is the right thing to do. This is the wrong thing to do. That's very rare, isn't it? It's very rare. Oh, I'm sorry, the solution is rarely simple. It's rarely a, a clean cut. If you do this, this will be the benefit. There, there's something that has to be weighed up in that equation. Well, I might push push back on that a bit. Actually, I think. Um, the, the solutions, we we actually make things unnecessarily complicated for ourselves. I, I sit through a lot of meetings um, at the moment. There's a lot of enthusiasm around about doing something about climate change. And the first thing people seem to want to emphasize whenever they talk about doing anything about climate change is how incredibly complicated the problem is. And this frustrates me because it's actually not that complicated. Um, you know, we just need to stop dumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And there's not that many ways of not dumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, given everything else we're doing. So, you know, that kind of focuses your mind on what we need to do. And, you know, I think if thinking back to that, um, that Woodstoves project, um, you know, the, the difficulty um, with, you know, how many trees were we saving? If, if, if the project had been just about saving the lungs of those cooks in the kitchens it was a roaring success mm. and and you know on that score um you know a very simple objective and, and 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 an excellent outcome um so you know things can have very clear you know things can have very clear outcomes um and we just need to be clear what we're trying to do mm. i was going to say there's an awful lot of emphasis on individuals to up their game with regards to climate change and there's you know that that comes even down from from policies what what can we sort of do as individuals to sort of encourage these global energy companies to up their game well this is what i always keep coming back to is that we can't solve climate change by you know tightening our belts and turning down the heating we can help make it possible to solve climate change that way so i'm not saying that individual action isn't important but in the end, as I say, it's really simple. We've got to stop fossil fuels from causing global warming. In a nutshell, that's what we have to do. We can do various other things which will help. But unless we stop fossil fuels from causing global warming, we won't stop climate change. And slowing down your own consumption of fossil fuels isn't going to stop fossil fuels globally from causing global warming. The only way to stop fossil fuels from causing global warming in the world as a whole is one, either to ban them completely, that, that would be an option, but it's not an option that I can really imagine either happening, or even imagine really wanting to live in a world in which that ban were possible, or we can decarbonize them. That means we have to work out a way of getting rid of the carbon dioxide, which is generated by the fossil fuels, so it's stashed away um, safely and permanently, not causing climate change and not sort of being dumped into the atmosphere. So that's what we what we uh, call or is called sequestering. Uh, yes, it's a it's a bad word apparently because it, it means 
kidnapping or something in Spanish. So, okay. um, so, so we should probably just talk kidnapping about kidnapping carbon. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, so, I you do want to kidnap the carbon, don't you? but, um, but, um, so, so, um, storage is basically what we're talking about. Um, right now, we are using the atmosphere as a gigantic landfill. We just dump our carbon dioxide in it. It persists for hundreds of thousands of years, uh, continuing to hold up global temperatures. Um, the only way we're going to stop driving up global temperatures is by stopping dumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And as I say, there's only two ways of doing that. We've got to either stop generating um, carbon dioxide entirely and make sure that everybody else does the same, which would be this global ban, or we've got to find other ways of getting rid of it. And that those other ways exist. And that's, you know, the, the technologies already exist to dispose of carbon dioxide without dumping it into the atmosphere, but we just aren't deploying them. You first wrote about this um, in an influential paper in, for the IPCC in 2001. Here we are having this conversation in uh, 2021. I know you've written several other papers throughout throughout the decades as well, though. But you, you're the person that pinpointed it's humans. We're we're causing we're causing this uh, this this damage, and also I think you changed uh, the way that we measure the impact that we're having. Um, are you ever frustrated? slightly downbeat negative about the fact that we're still having those conversations you're you're telling us now that it's solvable and it's doable and the technology exists but I haven't seen I, I've never seen I mean I'm a, I'm a passionate campaigner and I've never seen more news about climate change everywhere which I think is great it's in the news every day which is which is good I think everybody now knows um, that we've got to do something about it apart from large swathes of America but we'll talk about that in a minute um how frustrated are you and how do we like nudge this over the line? Well, first of all, I mean, uh, on, on the positive side, um, we have actually seen a, a lot of progress over the past decade. I mean, in 2009, we published uh, a bunch of papers. I mean, it wasn't just me, but various other people came up with the same result at around the same time, pointing out that carbon dioxide emissions uh, not only had to be reduced, which is what everybody was talking about at the time, but they had to get to net zero in order to stop global warming. Now, up until then, the mantra in climate policy was all about contraction and convergence to some kind of global amount of emission per head that was sustainable in some way. And that was a very comfortable notion because it meant that poor countries could increase their emissions per head while rich countries reduced them, and everybody would meet in the middle in a, some sort of happy future. The only problem was it just didn't work as far as the climate was concerned because there is no long-term sustainable rate of emission of carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide accumulates in the climate system like lead in your bloodstream, if you like. So you've just got to stop dumping it into the atmosphere entirely. Now, we published those papers in 2009. It was a deeply inconvenient result for climate policy, if you like, because they, they had this nice, comfortable policy which they were working on and just didn't chime with the science. Um, it wasn't just our papers that made the difference, but the fact that we had the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change process, which allowed governments to assess the papers, decide they were robust, um, look at the evidence. Um, and then, you know, in 2015, they acknowledged in the Paris Agreement that they had to get to net zero. Now, that's only six years, which, you know, for an international agreement with 190 odd companies, 190 odd countries um, signing up to it is phenomenal. I mean, if you think about what it takes them to make achieve nothing over fisheries in, in many decades, that's really quick. And so I think we do have to give the 
the policy community some credit for that, that they did absorb some relatively uncomfortable new science pretty quickly and accept to get on with it. And now, of course, we've got country after country coming up saying we're going to be at net zero by 2050 or even before 2050, and loads of companies likewise stepping up. So it seems to have propagated through not just into the international agreement level, but also into the plans of individual countries and companies. Of course, these are all still commitments. Um, the action is, is where we're having to still hope we'll see something happening next. You've said um, in the past that climate change became a party political issue in the States under the Bush administration, I think in 2001. Where do you think we're at now with the Biden administration having just come out of the Trump era? Well, I, I wouldn't want to point fingers here, actually, because to be honest with you, yeah, the Democrats were quite keen to make it a party political issue as well. And back in the 2000 campaign, you know, Al Gore was making climate a, a big part of his platform. And we should have political debates about solving climate change. In fact, I, I think in, in Britain, for example, I don't think we have enough political debate about how we solve it. Um, what it's what's a bit pointless is having political debates about the facts themselves, um, because you know that the politicians don't decide facts; the evidence does. Um, so, so I think you know, and unfortunately, um, in in the states at least, and in fact, in 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 much of Europe as well, um, people have been fed the line that there's only one way of solving climate change, and that's the way your government is telling you they're going to solve it. And therefore, if you don't like what they're proposing, You've got no object. You've got no option left but to say, "Well, I just don't believe in climate change at all," um, because there's sort of no discussion of any alternatives. And I, I do think we need to have much more open public debate about different ways we could solve climate change, rather than this sort of punch and Judy show about whether we should bother or not. And and the problem is, because the punch and Judy show has gone on for so long, anyone who says anything which sort of deviates from, as it were, the, 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 the climate establishment party line um, is, is immediately sort of, um, you, you, you see hackles raising and people worrying that you're um, just causing trouble and gonna slow things down and, and, and muddy the waters. Um, and you know, it, it's interesting to remember, we actually had this when we published those net zero papers back in 2009, we actually got, criticism from environmentalists to say you're off message this is not what we need for copenhagen and <laughs> you know so so but now those papers are cited by the very same environmentalists as you know the flagship justification for net zero so you, you can't pick and choose your facts but we've got to have arguments about how we address them and what, how, what we do about them what do you say to climate change deniers that are listening to this there are people who flat out, as you say, they're, they're, the option is believe in climate change or don't believe in climate change. How do you convince a climate change denier? Well, I, I would, whenever I talk to them, it generally turns out it actually isn't the facts that they're particularly preoccupied by. It's, you know, carbon taxes or wind turbines affecting their view from their mansion in um, the west of England or whatever. I mean, um, so so it's, um, it, you know, it's generally something else, something about climate policy that they don't like. Um, and as I say, they, they've, they've been told this line, you know, take it or leave it, this is the solution. Um, and, uh, and and if you, if you want a solution, this is the only one available. Um, 
and, and that, that they're left with no alternative but to say, well, I, I just don't want to have anything to do with this uh, whole uh, whole issue. So, um, you know, that's the conversation we need to have. Is like, okay, so th there's there's a risk we need to reduce emissions. We can argue about how fast we need to reduce emissions, but nobody can really argue that we'll never have to reduce emissions ever. And, um, you know, given that argument, how would you like to reduce emissions? What do you think would be a reasonable way of doing it? What would be a way of doing it that would sort of chime with your values and, and the thing? And, and, that, and that, I think, is a much more productive discussion to have. And this brings us back to the climate emergency rhetoric. I mean, in an emergency, you just do what you're told. Um, that's, you know, people often talk about putting um, climate response onto a wartime footing. Again, that that worries me because it implies that, you know, everybody should just do what they're told, do what the government tells them to do and, and you know, suspend discussion uh, about what the best approach is to dealing with the problem. And I, I don't think we're going to get the best outcome that way. Never mind. You know, I, I, I don't think that's, you know, even even if we even if we did all do what we're told, I'm not convinced that that actually would would deliver the best outcome for the climate system. So Greta Thunberg is is peddling the wrong message. Well, she's absolutely right to stress, you know, don't argue about the facts. I mean, and 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 I I I I love that part of her message, um, but I worry when um, the implication is you can you can find out what to do about this problem by just listening to the scientists. It's not up to me as an Oxford professor to tell people what to do about climate change. I can tell them what the implications are, various choices they can make. But in the end, it's got to be, you know, 8 billion consumers have got to make their minds up. Mm. Um, on a more practical kind of thing, I'm going to see the climate prediction project you're, you're obviously part of. How, how do you collate this data? How do you find it? How do you and then how do you administrate it afterwards? Oh, right. So, so that, that's, a, that's a, a great project that I'm, I'm very proud of because so many people have gotten involved in it over the years. Um, but what, it, it grew out of a need to quantify uncertainty in our climate forecasts better than we were able to do back in the early 2000s. Um, and, and one of the challenges we have is there's so many things that are uncertain in a climate model. Climate models are so complicated that it's quite difficult to say what they can't do. You, you know what they can do because you can sort of run them once and, and see what yeah. they do, see what happens. Um, but what you really want to know is, you know, what what can't the model do? And the way to explore that is to vary everything you don't know in the model and see what range of outcomes you can get. Um, or another application, um, if you're interested in possible weather, for example, that's another particular interest of ours. Um, how are the statistics of possible weather changing? These are weather events that haven't actually happened, but might happen. How are the risks of those events changing? Again, the only way to, to do that is to vary the things you don't know in the model and just see the vast range of possibilities that emerge. And for that, you need large amounts of computing power. And, um, you know, in the early 2000s, we we um, inspired by actually the, the SETI at Home project, uh, which was launched from California, where they were using this approach to look for signals of alien life. Um, we got lots of people to sign up their home computers to run these climate models for us. And to this day, actually, we've got some, some diehards who, who have stuck with us ever since and over the past 20 years um, have been busy running climate models in their basements. And we're very grateful to them. They send us their results back. And then we use these to build statistics of the range of possible futures and pasts um, that, we, that we could experience or might have experienced as well. 
we've become much more familiar with with modeling haven't we since the pandemic uh, <laughs> it's it's a phrase that w- that we now all i think understand and and we know we know a bit more what you're doing now <laughs> Yes, I mean, we, we've seen this with epidemiological models that they, you know, they need to be run lots of times. You need to uh, look at the range of uncertainty in the outcomes. And people now understand that a model doesn't give you an exact forecast of the future. It gives you a range of possibilities, but you can use them nevertheless to sort of inform your thinking. Um, but, uh, you know, again, what's, what, I, what I find interesting about all of these modeling exercises is um you, you can really focus on two things. You can focus on the extraordinary richness and diversity of possible futures that emerge from these simulations, or you can sort of step back and try and spot the things that don't happen um, in, in terms of, you know, if you do this, then that always happens. And one thing which is very, very consistent throughout the whole literature over the past decade, not just our own work, is that if you put a ton of CO2 into the atmosphere, it drives up global temperatures. And every ton drives up global temperatures by about the same amount as the last ton. And so, you know, that 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 cumulative impact of carbon dioxide on global temperatures is, is why we need to get to net zero, why we have to stop um, using the atmosphere as a landfill. Have you had the conversation with the fossil fuel industry? Have you been in the room with them? Absolutely. And, and this is where actually the most positive conversations I have about solving climate change are with people who work in the fossil fuel industry. And this may surprise people, but this industry absolutely knows how to solve the problem. And, you know, I was after the 1.5 degrees report came out, I had to give lots of talks about it in various places. And one of these was to one of the oil and gas majors. It was to their annual meeting of their young engineers, where they sort of get people together to sort of talk about the future of the company. And um, they got me in, you know, to talk about the 1.5 degrees report. This was uh, early 2019, I think. We just just published it. And of course, inevitably, somebody asked me at the end, well, seriously, do you think there's any chance of us actually limiting warming to 1.5 degrees? And I just asked the room, well, if you had to decarbonize your product, so that is safely and permanently dispose of one ton of carbon dioxide for every ton generated by the oil and gas you sell by 2050, which is roughly what it would take to limit warming to 1.5 degrees, would you be able to do so? And the engineers just said, well, of course we would. Mm. Like it's even a question. I mean, they did point out, of course, the same rules would have to apply to everybody, you know, because for them to do it alone as just that company would just mean that company would go bankrupt and all the others would would clean up. So so that would achieve nothing. But but in terms of could they do it? Was it technically possible? Of course it was. They know exactly how to do it. But the problem is that's not the way we're addressing this problem. We're addressing this problem by worrying about the carbon dioxide emitted by 8 billion consumers rather than the carbon dioxide embedded in the products sold by about 20 companies. Mm. And you do hear that that statistic uh, bandied around a lot, that it's, it's uh, of all of the emissions, it's coming from, as you said, 20 or 30 companies around the world. And that's what we have to focus on. They, they could solve the problem. And, and indeed, they're already coming out. And, you know, one of the hopeful developments over the past year has been um, major oil and gas companies coming, stepping up and saying they, they acknowledge that they've got a duty to, to, to step up here. And um, 
to publishing plans uh, for making not only their own activities, but also the products they sell consistent with net zero. Now, it doesn't mean it's all over or that we can just sort of um, leave leave the world in the sort of um, to the, um, in, 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 the, in the sort of cuddly hands of these um, lovely companies that have somehow suddenly seen the light because um, if you actually sort of look at what they're proposing, um, they at the moment typically involve expropriating a large amount of land area to grow trees to mop up the carbon generated by the fossil fuels they propose to continue to sell. And that may not work um, because or it certainly won't work uh, for very long uh, because we're just going to run out of land. Um, so, you know, th there's a limit to the amount of carbon we can dump in the biosphere. And I think it'd be great if these companies would acknowledge that, you know, pretty soon, probably within a few decades, there's, there's no option. If you dig it up, you've got to put it back. Um, and, and, and again, talking to people within the companies, they get this. They they know that. They know that they can't just turn rocks into trees forever. Um, so they they under and and they know how to do it. They know how to dispose of. It's the same. It's the same process as getting the hydrocarbons out in the first place. It's just putting the CO two back into the Earth's crust. Why then have we seen this uplift in? Um, I call them plastic fracking plants. There's a, there's a huge uplift in new facilities now to create virgin plastic. And they're investing billions, or the, the petroleum companies are investing billions in these uh, in these um, these places. There's there's I think there's one in Pennsylvania and Virginia, which is a billion, billion dollars. And I was reading that it will, when it's finished, it will employ 5,000 people and it will pump out the equivalent of 450,000 cars a year. I mean, um Plastic is a, an incredible resource in the sense that, but it's it's also it's it's got its problems. Um, as we all know, you've only got to go and sort of look at these ghastly pictures of mid-ocean regions where sort of plastic detritus is accumulating and so on to realise we, we we've got to manage uh, our our addiction to plastic um, just as we fail to manage our addiction to oil. Um, but of course, the, the advantage of it does have big advantages. It's 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 much lighter than steel. It's uh, it takes much less energy uh, generally generally speaking to produce a car um, made of plastic and carbon fiber than it does uh, to produce it conventionally and so on. So so there are also there are all sorts of um, positives. Uh, I think there's also an element of of these industries positioning themselves because they're seeing that just selling hydrocarbons to be burnt um, is going to make less and less sense. As the uh, as the century wears on, so um, they're they're looking into new markets. Um, but I, I think one of the important things here is is not to let us get distracted by that kind of development from the fundamental point that we've got to stop fossil fuels from causing global warming. Um, so just because we've come up with other things to do with fossil fuels, well, that's fine, provided those other things are not causing global warming, um, and um, you know, but it doesn't it doesn't absolve us from dealing with the fossil fuels that are still being burned, and that's carbon dioxide that's still being dumped in the atmosphere, rather than uh, safely stored elsewhere. It's been fascinating talking to you, uh, Miles. I, I want to can I can I dip into your personal life just for a moment? Not too not too much, but I've uh, read uh, about you and your wife, and you met when you were um, at university. Is that right? That's right. And you followed her to Boston. I like this story. Please embellish a little bit because you are a household of two very eminent scientists. Irene Tracy is your wife, who is a 
who is um, an incredible woman in her in her own right. What's what's the dinner table like with you guys? You, well, she's indefatigably yeah. positive. That's certainly one thing. <laughs> um, and uh, we'll have to have her on. <laughs> absolutely, yes. Um, although she studies pain, uh, which but you know how, how do you how, how but she manages to be positive about it. So so there's 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 lots of ways of, of basically how pain works and 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 uh, and how it works in the brain and therefore how we can how we can really address some of the some of the um, really um, chronic problems people have with with chronic pain and so on so um yeah no i mean she she she'd already decided when we met that she was going to harvard uh for a couple of years uh, on a postdoc so i had to find myself uh, something to do in boston and um i was going to go as a as a trailing spouse as they put them in the uh, american immigration uh, <laughs> is that is that your that would have been your title trailing spouse yeah, yeah they seem to sort of they, they probably got a whole division for coming up with you know, derogatory names to give people <laughs> but uh uh, but in the end, actually, no. I was uh, I was very fortunate. I got a fellowship uh, from NOAA, and, and I was actually hosted by Professor Richard Lindzen, um, who's actually one of very well known as one of the leading skeptic voices um, in the U.S. on climate change. Um, so we never actually ended up publishing anything together. But I, I don't know. I think I served a purpose of a sort in that um, it was just the mid '90s when the sort of first conclusions were coming out about detecting human influence on global climate. And every time somebody said something that uh, Dick didn't like, he'd wander into my office and shout at me for a bit and then wander <laughs> back in the Wall Street Journal. And uh, so, so I, I, I don't know, I sort of relieved the, the pressure valve a bit, perhaps. But um, How ironic. Well, well we, we, knew, we knew that we didn't agree on most things. But I do wonder whether perhaps his um, aversion to the sort of monolithic state-controlled, uh, state-imposed solution to climate change, which was really driving a lot of his thinking, and I think still does. I, I probably, some of that rubbed off on me as well, and I, I think I, I get it that um, I, I just don't think that's going to work. Um, and I think we have to find other ways of dealing with this problem. And, and as I say, I think the solution lies within the companies themselves. Yeah. Giles, do you want to introduce Miles to the happy jar? Yes, we've kind of we've thrown this on you at the last minute, but um, we at the end of every episode we we like to put three things in our happy jar, which are, it could be um, a moment, uh, a nice meal, a thought, a maxim, a place. It's basically it's something that uh, in in times when you're perhaps not feeling uh, very positive, Miles, that, that this would be something that would lift your spirits and it might lift the spirits of our listeners as well. So we've had, you know, we've had favourite places before and we've had uh, favourite phrases uh, and people and books and articles of clothing. We've had everything, really. You can have your wife if you want. <laughs> Well, obviously, um, but uh, uh, so, so, so uh, it should be like, um, yeah, it, it should be like Des Dundas, shouldn't it? Yes. In addition to your wife and family. Yes. Um, yes. So what else do you want to put in the happy jar? <laughs> a, a couple of memories I'd certainly want to, to take to the happy jar, which are uh, you know, apropos this conversation. I've spent a lot of time over the past couple of years talking to school strikers. Um, and what's always impressed me was the contrast between the um, indefatigably cheerful, albeit a little bit worried, um, generally women, uh, young women, who are holding these posters saying, I'm going to die of climate change. And when you get talking to them, they're incredibly positive people. And, and they're full of ideas about the future, full of enthusiasm um, for solving problems. And that's really what 
convinces me that we we will solve this problem. Um, and you know, back to the the folks working um, in the oil and gas industry and their ability to solve things to, to solve problems, um, they, they just need to be given the 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 guide the guiding the the landing lights to to do so. And you want three things in your your happy job. Well, we can. Have, I think that's one. I think that's great. I don't think we've okay. had a young um, female activist. We can have we can have one of those a positive female activist. That's definitely one. Another thing that I've learned over the past year. Um, is and I think a lot of us have learned um, is the the flexibility of life. Um, we've all learned to deal with um, life in a very different way during the pandemic. Um, I, I don't think this is a, a, at all an analogy of how we should deal with climate change. Uh, and the idea of dealing with climate change is sometimes kind of giant lockdown. I think is, a, is, a, is an appalling idea, um, but it does show that you know we can. We can learn positive outcomes. You know, I've met a lot of people over the past year that I probably wouldn't have met um, if I'd had to actually travel to them and so on. So um, that there's there's something that I've I've certainly learned recently um, is you know the the the, the flexibility of folks, um, which makes uh, the future um, so so positive. Um, and actually, lastly, I'm just going to drop in uh, w- w- one one thing for for people listening. Um, I, I've um, um, one another little bit of research I've been doing relates to the impact of uh, livestock on climate, and um, talking to farmers about um, their their impact on the planet has been actually quite inspiring because um, I think farmers often feel a little beleaguered um, on this issue, um, but they're genuinely committed to getting things right um, and um, doing the right thing by the environment they live in. They're very in touch with the environment. Um, and uh, many of the conversations I've had with, with the world's farmers over the past year have been another uh, great positive that I'd want to take with me into the happy jar. Very good. Very, very unique. We haven't had three happy jar entrants like that before. I love it. Well, thank you, Miles. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and learn more about this subject. I mean, it's been fascinating sort of researching the work you do. And um, yeah, it's, like I say, very inspired by by your words. And um, yeah, thank you for joining us today. And thank you for studying uh, physics and philosophy <laughs> for all of us. It was a great course. I recommend it very strongly to anybody. Professor Miles Allen, it's been lovely. Thanks for coming on A Little Bit of Positive. Great. Well, thank you. Well, Julia, what a fantastic conversation we've just had with Miles. I mean, it was just fascinating. I learned so much. I love him as well. He is, uh, he's, he, he looks to me and he sounds to me, he's just a brilliant professor. He's the perfect professor. And he explained everything brilliantly. And I love his positivity. Mm. He's such an erudite man. And he is his, his outlook is very positive. And he's obviously somebody who is so stimulated and passionate about his work. Uh, and I also adore the fact that, as you do, just on the back of the whiteboard behind you, you've got just the the symbol for chaos theory. Because, <laughs> I <know. laughs> and I really wanted to get him to sort of explain it to us. But um, all I can remember is Jeff Goldblum in, in Jurassic Park explaining chaos theory. And I think I'll stick with his. Um, Are you going to go with that? I'm going to go with his, yeah. Okay. I mean, I think Miles did explain it to us, but you probably just can't remember because it was yeah. two seconds ago. <laughs> <laughs> what have you got behind you then? You do not have the symbol of chaos theory. What can I say? Are the no, this is just, I've got the standard Zoom kind of background, which is books. 
Um, But you've got all sorts of things behind you. I've also got books uh, and I'm on brand. I've got 1001 Walks, which obviously I did the forward for. Um, And this is my favourite thing that I've got behind me, though. It is, and this is genuine, it's a $100 trillion note from the Bank of Zimbabwe. What? $100 trillion. $100 trillion. So President Mugabe, uh, who it's widely known, destroyed the economy of Zimbabwe, uh, kept a lot of the money for himself. Um, but the 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 inf- inflation rate has been absolutely terrifying um, over various periods of time through uh, the Zimbabwe economy. And my friend Lucy, who's a Zimbab, a Zim, as they say, she brought me that because she just thought that it was just a wonderful thing that we should all have one of those just to remind ourselves of how incredibly bollocks the, the economy <laughs> yeah. of Zimbabwe came. That's the, it's the only words to use. Um, and one of my favourite things is when when uh, journalists are doing doing stories about various rates of inflation around the world, they always sit in a cafe and they drink their cup of coffee and they go, "When I started this report, the cup of, <laughs> the cup of coffee cost me one dollar, and now it's four million seven hundred thousand um, dollars." Financial and- people always talk like that as well. I'm always like that. <laughs> so describe yeah. describe the note though, because it's I can see it's blue, but can you describe oh, it to the listeners? Well, it's um it, they're sort of pastel colours, mm. and it starts with a shade of coral to the left, and then it blends into a sort of a, a light burnt orange tone. And there are it, it, there are there are three stones on top of on top of another, like a cairn actually. Uh, that's that's weird. That's the um, there's buffalo. There's bison on one side, buffalo or bison on one side, and three cairn-like stones on on the other side. And then it says one hundred trillion dollars in large letters on the left, and then it has the all the notes, all all the numbers all along the top, and it says re- the Reserve Bank of Zimbabwe. Um, and that's all I can say. And I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna pop that back. Well, so do you know we what, Julia? I think at some point in the next. 20 years there's going to be a note somewhere mm. with a picture of michael packard on it sort of flying out of the mouth of a humpback whale do you think so he, there might be heroes of our time or survivors of our time yeah maybe <laughs> i don't sound very convinced <laughs> don't know yeah I'm, I'm i'm more convinced that there's going to be a movie i'm not so sure about a, a, a note or a stamp <laughs> I think we should end it there. <laughs> Have we? Is that is that is that enough of a high? <laughs> I was trying to bring it back round, but obviously it didn't work. No, I'm not sure that that did. No, it's all right. Every... Cut that out. All right then, <laughs> cut that bit out. So we'll end on the high note of inflation. Oh. Uh, 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 Brilliant. This has been a little bit of positive. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe and tell all your friends about it if you want to smile.